So this is uh, week three. It's week three of our series where we see Jesus taking the initiative to eliminate any social distance between him and his followers, even when they've taken no action to bridge the gap themselves, to, to mitigate this gap between them and the one they've pledged to follow. Doesn't seem to deter Jesus at all, not at all. Because Jesus even pursues those who have walked away from him, even those who have denied knowing him or totally failed him. We'll, we'll see that actually in today's text. The truth is, Jesus pursues us. Jesus searches for us even when we're not looking for him. It's because he's the good shepherd. He's the good shepherd who searches for his wayward sheep. So today we look at one more passage, one more passage where Jesus initiates a connection with one of his followers after the resurrection, shortly after being raised from the dead. He first connected with Mary Magdalene, just outside the tomb, moments after he's been resurrected, when she had gone to anoint his body for proper burial the morning of the resurrection. Mary was heartbroken and insecure about her future and about her relationship with Jesus now that he was gone. But Jesus assured her that their relationship, their relationship had actually been upgraded, upgraded, upgraded in access, in authority, and identity. Jesus reminded Mary that it was good for her that he had gone away because she now had access to his spirit which now resides inside her. And she had a new authority. She was now able to go directly to the Father for herself with any request, with any concern. Just ask in my name, Jesus told her. And she now enjoyed an upgraded identity as a child of God, as a favored daughter of the king, now that her sin had been paid for. This short visit with the resurrected Jesus gave Mary a joy, a joy and a confidence, a confidence that any distance she feared that existed between her and Jesus was now gone. Jesus wasted no time at bridging the gap with this fear-filled follower. So a short time later, after that afternoon in fact, Jesus joined two companions who were on a seven-mile journey to a village called Emmaus to spend the night. These two had left the action and excitement of Jerusalem, disappointed and defeated because they had checked out early. They had left too soon to learn that Jesus had been raised from the dead. I mean, they had lost hope. They had lost all hope. That is, until the living hope stood before them until the one who is resurrected identified himself at the evening meal. And when these two recognized Jesus, the one who was wounded for their transgressions, when they saw the scars that would save them, they were overjoyed. Overjoyed and they could not wait to get back to Jerusalem to tell the disciples that they had left there that they had been with, they had seen the risen Jesus. It was true. 
Jesus removed any distance between himself and these two followers who had quit too easily. They had quit believing the promises, the claims that Jesus had made before he went to the cross. But they were believers now because their eyes were opened. Both these connections took place like within 12 hours of the resurrection. Again, Jesus wasted no time at eliminating any social distance between him and those who called themselves their, his disciple. But, but what about those who had previously followed him and walked away? What about that, those who had denied him? Or maybe those who had failed him so miserably that they did not feel worthy anymore to be called one of his disciples. What about them? Well, today, today we learn that Jesus pursues former disciples. He goes after guilt-ridden followers and total failures. It doesn't stop Jesus from going after them even though they have given up on him. You see, they may have given up on Jesus, but he has not given up on them. In fact, the scripture passage that clues us into Jesus' posture toward those who have quit on him or denied him or completely failed him, it's actually found in the exact same narrative that describes Mary Magdalene at the tomb that resurrection morning. Our text for today is Mark chapter 16, verse 7. Mark 16, 7. Maybe the shortest passage you have ever heard a sermon on. Certainly the shortest text I've ever preached. And I know, I know what you're thinking. You're like, oh, good. Short text, short sermon. Well, prepare to be disappointed. Sorry. So Mark chapter 16. Mark 16, it includes a portion of the dialogue that the angel at the tomb spoke with Mary Magdalene when she visited the tomb that resurrection morning. Here's what the angel said to Mary as recorded in Mark chapter 16, starting in verse six. Don't be alarmed, the angel said. You are looking for Jesus, the Nazarene who was crucified. He has risen from the dead. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter, Jesus is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. That's the conversation the angel had with Mary, but I want us to focus on just one phrase in verse seven. Go, tell his disciples and Peter. In fact, I wanna focus on the very end of that phrase, just the, and Peter. I mean, it, it reads kind of strange, doesn't it? I mean, the angel directs Mary to go tell the news to the disciples, and Peter, like why single Peter out? What's also strange about this narrative is that Mark's gospel is the only account that includes the angel inserting that phrase, and Peter. Several of the gospels uh, include the angel's dialogue with Mary, instructing Mary to go tell the disciples, but only Mark's account tacks on the phrase, and, and tell Peter. Like, especially tell Peter, don't forget to tell Peter. So why does the angel make special mention of Peter? 
I can think of two reasons. So the first reason Peter is singled out in this account, it has to do with the authorship of this particular gospel. You see, the person who wrote Mark's gospel was a young man named John Mark. John Mark. We know him only as Mark, so as not to confuse him with another gospel author who's named John, who's written the Gospel of John. So rather than having two gospel authors named John, we have Mark and we have John. I mean, keeps it simple, keeps it clear, no confusion, makes perfect sense. This young author, Mark, was a helper and a constant companion of Peter's. In fact, it's widely understood that this author, Mark, got much of the details for the writing of his gospel accounts from someone who was an eyewitness, someone who was often closer to the events that took place than anyone else. Yeah, you guessed it. That would be Peter. So with Peter, like, looking over Mark's shoulder as he pens this account of this angelic visitation with Mary Magdalene just outside the tomb, it was Peter himself who prompted this author, Mark, to make sure that he inserted the phrase, and Peter, when he records the angel's instructions to Mary. And it wasn't to, to boastfully draw attention to himself like as, Peter's, as Jesus' favorite disciple. It, it wasn't you know, to get some extra press, but rather Peter's intention was to humbly draw attention to himself as the failure, as the failure that Jesus forgave, as the one that Jesus mercifully restored. Peter wants to highlight Jesus' amazing grace and forgiveness, of which he was the recipient time and time again, but, but none more undeserving than after this colossal failure of denying the one who would save him, abandoning the one who would go to the cross and lay down his life for him. So at Peter's urging, the author Mark includes the phrase, and Peter, into his narrative as a nod to his friend's desire to showcase the amazing grace, the amazing forgiveness that Jesus had shown him. All of this, of course, all of this under the supervision, under the direction of the Holy Spirit directing this author, Mark. But we'll give an assist to Peter. That explains the first reason why this little phrase, and Peter, has been inserted into this gospel account. So to uncover the, the second reason Peter is singled out when the angel directs Mary to go tell the disciples and Peter we'll need to check the interchange between Jesus, the resurrected Jesus, and the totally dejected Peter that is recorded in the final chapter of John chapter 21, the other gospel author named John. In John chapter 21, in this account, the author John records that several of the disciples are together, they are in their hometown around the Sea of Galilee, Peter happening to be one of them. It's probably a week or so after the resurrection. And at this time, Jesus initiates a reconnection with Peter on the beach and reinstates him as friend 
as a disciple and as a valued leader in helping build the future kingdom that Jesus spoke so much about. Peter's reinstatement as future kingdom builder is especially significant and it will be our focus for the balance of our time. Here's why. Because no one has failed as spectacularly as Peter. Peter's very public failure was about as bad as any failure could be for one who called himself a disciple of Jesus. It, it would be hard to conceive of a way of blowing it worse than Peter did. I mean, think of it. Peter had spent three years almost constantly in Jesus' presence. He had heard Jesus teach. He had seen him perform miraculous signs. He was in the inner circle of the 12. Peter probably was Jesus' closest friend and certainly the leader and spokesperson for his band of disciples. I mean, think of what Peter has seen firsthand. I mean, he had been in the room when the Roman centurion's daughter was raised from the dead. Think of it. He had witnessed Jesus in all his glory on the Mount of Transfiguration. Peter had seen Jesus do the impossible, do the miraculous, turning water into wine, feeding 5,000 with a boy's lunch, Jesus walking on top of the water, maybe greater still, stilling the, a violent storm with just a command from his lips. G Peter saw all of this. Blind eyes seeing, deaf ears open, leprosy cured, and good friend Lazarus being raised from the dead right before his very eyes. Peter had a front row seat to all of it. And on the one night, Jesus needed the support of his friends. The dark night of Gethsemane and the events following, Peter failed the one he had pledged to die for, sinned against the sinless one, and denied the one who would endure the cross for his salvation, who would bleed and die for his redemption. Peter still didn't know if Jesus had any use for him since his denial. Peter thought, I mean, how could he ever trust me again? Like, why would he? No one's feeling worse about his disloyalty and cowardly actions of that night than Peter. So in John chapter 21, the author records that Jesus initiates a conversation with Peter to bridge the gap, to remove any distance Peter feels between him and his Savior. Jesus wants to assure Peter that he still considers him one of his disciples. He wants to, him to know that he has not given up on him and that he still sees Peter of having a significant role to play in building the future kingdom. This interchange with Jesus, I mean, it's not a particularly pleasant memory for Peter. Uh, you... Most of you are very familiar with this passage, right? Three times Jesus asked Peter if he loved him. And three times Peter sheepishly affirms his love for Jesus. His reply is a mix of you know, guilt and shame and remorse and embarrassment over, over his very public denial of Jesus in the courtyard that night. Like the picture is all too clear in Peter's memory. 
And there's no missing the symbolism here of this threefold exchange between Jesus and Peter. But Peter may be missing the greater truth demonstrated here because the, the guilty feels for disowning his friend. But it's not lost on us, not today. We're not gonna miss it because it's right here. It's unmistakably clear. It's this. Jesus continues seeking you even when you have failed him. Even when you have failed him miserably. Even when you've been unfaithful, Jesus remains faithful. Jesus doesn't give up on you even when you've given up on yourself. He remains committed to you no matter what. No matter what. And you and I, like Peter, on our worst, on our worst day, Jesus never lost sight of who he created us to be. His plans and purposes for you and me have not changed. On your darkest day, God did not lose sight of your potential and your future and your destiny. God never once wondered if he had made a mistake or overlooked something about you, something that would you know, disqualify you from the purpose he created you for. He will never give up on you. He has not and will not change his mind about you. The truth is, you need to change your mind. That's it. You need to change your mind and start to believe what God says about you. Change your mind from the way you think to the way God thinks. That's actually the definition for repentance. Repentance means change your mind. Change your way of thinking. Turn your thinking around and believe God. Believe what God says about you. God's word says that you were created for a purpose, a purpose you were created for before you were even born. And you need to align your thinking with what God says about you, that he chose you. He chose you to represent Jesus. He chose you to be one of his ambassadors. He chose you to, to do what Jesus had been doing and even greater things now that his spirit resides inside you. And I know, I know it sounds too good to be true, but it's true. Jesus' reinstatement of Peter confirms it. In this exchange, Peter reinstates Peter. <laughs> Jesus reinstates Peter to be one of his ambassadors, one of his shepherds, to love people and direct them to Jesus. In fact, to convince Peter that his purpose and destiny has remained intact, Jesus goes on to tell Peter that not only would he shepherd people into the kingdom once Jesus is gone, but that Peter would even glorify, glorify God on the way he died. That Peter would die a martyr in the name and service of Jesus. And after affirming that Peter would feed and shepherd his sheep, just like Jesus did, Jesus concluded his prophetic pep talk with Peter by reminding him to keep his focus, to keep his focus on one thing, the only thing that matters. Jesus says, Peter, you follow me. Lasted about three seconds. No sooner had Jesus said this to his reinstated disciple and Peter totally loses his focus. Look at the text, verse 19. So Jesus says, Peter, 
follow me. Peter turned and saw that John, another disciple, was following them. When Peter saw John, he asked, Lord, what about him? Jesus answered, if I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? You must follow me. Jesus tells Peter, and you and I for that matter, to keep your focus on one thing, God's unique purpose and plans for you. Follow me, Jesus says. Don't worry about anyone else. Run your race. No looking over your shoulder. You follow me. Do not compare your personality, your gifting, your purpose, your ministry, your calling, or your destiny with anyone else. Jesus says, don't worry about anyone else, my purpose and plans for them. You can't fulfill the plans and purposes I have for you if you're concerned about what I'm doing with them. They are not your concern. What is that to you? You follow me. So here it is. Here it is. It's the second reason why the phrase, and Peter, was tacked on to that account in Mark's gospel. Because Jesus had unique and specific purposes for Peter in building the future kingdom. He wanted Peter to share and teach and shepherd all those who would believe and follow Jesus and wanted Peter to use all that he had learned and experienced and witnessed in his own life. God would use Peter's past, all of it, the good, the bad, and the ugly, to be his platform for ministry. God wanted to use Peter's unique personality, calling, and experiences, even the failures, especially the failures, to benefit and impact others for the kingdom. So how did Peter do? Peter's letters included toward the end of your Bible in 1st and 2nd Peter make it abundantly clear that Peter's education through failure was not wasted. It was not wasted, but God used it to build the kingdom, to benefit all those who would choose to follow Jesus. Lessons Peter learned the hard way benefits you and me today. Here are just a few. Before his failure, here's what Peter boasted. Peter said, even if all fall away, I will not. But years later, Peter writes, clothe yourselves with humility towards one another. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Peter learned this one the hard way. In the garden, Peter failed to watch and pray with Jesus. His heart and mind were were clouded with fear and anxiety. Later he writes, be clear-minded and self-controlled so you can pray. Peter hastily defends the unjust arrest of Jesus by pulling out his sword and taking off the ear of a man named Malchus. Later he writes, when you do what is right and suffer for it and patiently endure it, this finds favor with God. Peter was caught off guard in the courtyard, right, and denied the Lord in front of a servant girl. Later, Peter writes, always be prepared. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give a reason for the hope that's within you. Again, another lesson learned the hard way. 
Peter remembered feeling unworthy when the resurrected Jesus commissioned him to follow him, to follow his example and feed his sheep when he was on the beach that day. Peter later writes, as one of the elders of the church, here's what he writes, be shepherds of God's flock under your care. Be an example to the flock. And Jesus' final command to Peter, you follow me. Peter later reminds all believers that Christ left us an example by the way he lived, and we are to follow his example. We are to follow in his steps. And do I need to remind you that it was Peter who preached the sermon on the day of Pentecost where 3,000 people were saved, right? The launch point for the church and the defining moment for the growing kingdom of God, and it was Peter. God takes those who have failed the worst and makes them trophies of his grace, right? They often become champion kingdom builders for God. These two words inserted in Mark's gospel and Peter show us that there's no failure that can separate us from the risen Savior's love or his purposes for us. Hey, mark this. The love of Christ triumphs over all sin, turns weakness into strength, transforms character, and from the depths of denial and despair, it raises the redeemed to be powerful kingdom builders for God. The resurrected Jesus offers hope to all of us who have failed. And Peter is living proof. As we wrap up this series, I wanna speak to all of us so we don't leave anything on the table, so we don't miss a thing that God may have for us. So here's the question. Here's the question I want you to think about. I want you to think about it now, but even on later this week, with a friend, with family members, with your community group, I want you to think about it now, but I want you to think and talk about it this week. Reflect on it so that God can do some work, and some internal work on you. Here's the question. Which one of Jesus' followers that we've studied over the past three weeks do you most identify with? Which one of these three do you most identify with? Maybe, maybe you identify with Mary Magdalene, a believer, you're a believer, but anxious and fearful about your relationship to Jesus. I wanna remind you it's for your good that Jesus has returned to the Father because you now have Jesus' spirit residing inside you. You now enjoy an upgraded relationship in access, authority, and identity. In access to the Heavenly Father, in authority in your prayer life, and in identity as a child of God, as a favored son, as a favored daughter of the King. Your next step is to believe it. Your next step is to meditate on these truths so you not just only know it here, but you believe it in here. Believe it. Or, or maybe you're more like the two on the road to Emmaus and you have lost hope. You know, you've, you've quit believing because you've been disappointed. You've been discouraged because of unmet expectations. I want to remind you, Jesus is closer than you think. Actually, right there beside you. And he is working on your behalf, even if you can't see it, 
even if you can't feel it. His promises for you are true. Believe him. Trust him. What you need to do, you need to ask him to open your eyes. That should be your new prayer. Open my eyes, Lord. Open my eyes to see what you're doing, where you're working. I want to see what you see. That's your prayer. Or if you're like Peter, if you're like Peter and have failed and have disqualified yourself for ever being used by God again, I want to remind you that your failure is not fatal. You can be forgiven and you have a future. Let me say that again. Your failure is not fatal. You can be forgiven and you do have a future. Because God has not changed his mind about you. He has not given up on you. His plans and purposes for you have not changed. You need to ask him to show you what they are and then to pray this prayer. Pray something like this. Help me, God. Help me. Forgive my failure and help me to change the way I think so I can trust you, I can believe you, and not lean on my own understanding, my own wisdom. What I have is yours, but what I have I give to you to bless others and to build your kingdom. So have your way. Have your way with me and my life, God. Have your way. All this, all this in the powerful name of the resurrected Jesus, amen.